That's it? That was your dance? I have a limp mic. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> Don't have my basketball. Yeah, where's your basketball? Hey, where's my basketball? Roll it down the hall. <sighs> Hello, everybody. Happy May. Almost Hope everybody. June. Almost June. It is. Yeah. Memorial Day weekend is coming up. That's always a good signal. And there comes my ball rolling past my feet now. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate that. I have my basketball because I'm Achida and antsy, and it helps me keep me focused and on the mic so you guys can hear my wonderful voice for the whole episode. Yay. Yay. So, Bob, what do you got? Get us something while I get my ball. What do you got? Give me a story. A story? Oh, uh, just back to the grind after the uh, the whole experience with a gallbladder and so fun to be back to the working course. So I think you guys heard me reference a couple weeks ago that Bob was going to ride this gallbladder train for like a year. At least. So we're, at we're, least. Definitely, we're definitely you know, going to move move to that year. Yeah. yeah. In, I, I was in, right. In my household, I, I, you know, if there's something that I don't want to do, I always remind my partner. I'm like, oh, I had a procedure, so I can't really do that. <laughs> oh, so yeah. He's <laughs> loving that at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so quick like a bunny. I had a really cool experience last Friday. Dual day. Dual day, what does that mean? So in 1991, the Dunleavy family, which is a little bit crazy, they live in the Albany, Saratoga area, and they run a series mm. of, uh, they, uh, I think it's T-Bird cars. They basically repossess cars, right? That's what they do. But they're a great family, uh, big time Adirondacks, skiers, outdoorsmen. So in 1991, two of the brothers who they're bored because, you know, everything's going well in their lives and they got kids and grandkids and heaven forbid they got a family of like 50 people. Okay. So they come back from Killington and it's a nice day and Chris goes, we should water ski. Stop at the lake house and water ski. In 1991, they just did it impromptu. And after that, they have done dual day ever since. So they have gone to Killington in the morning and then they followed up either, it used to be at Lake George, and now it's Ballston Lake, which is just south of Saratoga Springs. And it's a special kind of lake, I don't know the name of it, they do, um, that doesn't, the bottom stays the bottom and the top of the lake stays the top. There's no turning over of the water. It's okay. a very narrow lake and it's hmm. fed by springs, I believe, and that's part of it. Um, so there's two different kinds of water in it. So, so the water up top is always a little bit warmer and very calm, so it's a great water ski lake. So you went downhill skiing and then you went water skiing. I downhill skied and snowboarded at Killington. We had a nice lunch, made about eight runs, and then we drove back to the Lake George area. We went to, back to Boston Lake, went to, I think it's uh, Verigo Pizza Place. It's right across from a boat launch on Boston Lake. We had three boats, ski boats, and I... I would have been able to water ski, wakeboard, and wake surf, but one of the, the boat I was on had some issues, so we got delayed. I didn't get to water ski, but I got to wakeboard and wake surf four things in one day. Freezing water? No. Uh, I had a wetsuit, but the water was actually 62 degrees because of the, the what I was telling you about the lake. Oh. So basically, anytime the sun's out, it, it warms up the top of that lake. So, nice. so there were guys out there with no wetsuits. Uh, a little frigid for them, but for my wetsuit, I was fine. But So I did all four activities. Then I drove back Route 90 listening to, and I wanted to tell everybody about this Hangout Fest. So Satellite Radio, XM, they put on the Hangout Fest in Alabama. And I'm going to say thank you very much, Diplo. Thank you very much, Hangout Fest. Thank you, Ashley. Or I'm sorry, not Ashley, Madison. Hashtag Madison. You're kind of sounding like an Alanis Morissette song there. Because, because that music for the weekend down in Alabama was rocking. Some of the newest alternative bands, and I got to dance 
in the car on the way back 90. Then I went to one nightclub, a couple of friends of mine, we danced to like 1.30 in the morning. Have you so ever, that was Friday. Have you ever sat day. in your car dancing away to some of your songs and someone's pulling up next to you and they just stop and they're looking at you like you're some kind of weirdo? I've gotten to the point now where I dance every time it's a good song at an intersection, so I've stopped looking at other people because I've been given that, gotten that look probably over a thousand times in I've, my life. I've had an entire carload laugh at me hysterically because they see me acting like a fool in a car next to them and I'm like, whatever, I'm just enjoying my music. So I'm on the corner of East Main Street and Witten Road recently and a group of black gentlemen pull up next to me and they got some kind of song going on. And I got Billie Eilish, who's a new 17-year-old from Brooklyn, 9 million downloads in the last couple weeks. and or, I'm sorry, last couple months. She's phenomenal. Some people like her, some people don't. I, I really groove to her. So I go, hey, boys, have you heard this yet? So now these guys are all grooving on their jam, you know, their rap music. So I go, you listen to this? And I turn up my Billie Eilish. Now I have my Subaru. I open my top window, <laughs> my tied two windows, and I just crank it. Dude, those guys are videotaping me dancing somewhere <laughs> in the city of Rochester's on a Twitter, Instagram, something on uh, somewhere, Snapchat. There's me dancing to Billie Eilish in front of a car of black boys, and they were loving me. You're the man. Da, da, da. I, they heard about my podcast. I'll tell you funny. that. All right. <laughs> All right. So which, here we are distracted by my dual day. I apologize. That's okay. Uh, and springtime is coming up. Uh, Memorial Day, so I hope everybody has good plans to get out of the house on Memorial Day. Get off that couch. Consume cannabis, but don't do it on your couch. Inside, get out. Even if the weather is not perfect, it's time for a three-day weekend. Let's get out and yeah. explore. We're hoping to get to Watkins Glen. Oh, yeah, is that what your plan? Yep. That's our favorite plan. Bob, you brought me there the first time. Uh, love it there. Oh, man. Last year when I went there for the fish show that got canceled, I have video of, of the footage of, of the waterfall that you walk under. Yeah. I've never seen as much volume of water and stuff coming through there. Like normally you could put your hand out and like touch it. Right, right. I wouldn't have put my hand anywhere near that water with the amount of debris that was in it. Like you could just see the blackness and sticks and oh, wow. it, was, it was right after the heavy rain last summer. Yep. And it was the most incredible I've ever seen Watkins Glen. I, I was watching erosion happen in the moment. It was the coolest thing ever. Like, How do you like the, uh, the renovations? I like them. I didn't see all of them because when I went last year, part of it was closed off. Oh. But I'm very happy with the way they, they reconfigured some yep, of it. Yeah, it's you nice. too. Yeah, yep, yep. I mean, in the pool, they maintain the pool and the the. So Watkins Glen is south of Seneca Lake. For those of you who don't know, it's in the Finger Lakes area of of New York. It is south of it's south point of Seneca Lake, which is the deepest of all the Seneca Lakes. I believe it's the deepest point. I believe it's 800 feet, and they used to do naval testing in that lake back in the day. Most people don't know that there was two military two military bases there. Seneca Army Depot, and there was also a naval base. And the naval base actually built summer submarines next to Seneca Lake. They would test them in Seneca Lake and then bring them out to the ocean. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this yeah. stuff. Yeah, but that, yeah. that's where the uh, the white deer are now. That's right. The that's right. The albino deer, which definitely came from government testing on those oh. spots. We know that. <laughs> but let's 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 fast forward a little bit. But Watkins Glen is a beautiful park at the south end of that lake, folks. It's a very short hike, like a, a mile and a half or so. Uh, it's tied to the Finger Lakes but it, Trail. It can be strenuous because there are a lot of steps. How many steps, Bob? Like, I don't know. I never counted them. It depends on which trail you take because it just goes on and on and on and on. How many waterfalls in a small, small span? Uh, oh, God. Uh, major waterfalls? 16, I think, yeah. in a mile. Like, if, if you can think about that, folks, that's a yeah. lot. You're just walking up a staircase basically yep. for a mile and a half. But if you've never been there, you need to go. Definitely. So... Without much further ado, we do have a guest this week. It's not just Bob and I, even though we could go on all day. Right? Uh, so our guest w was brought to me uh, through an uh, event that, that I had with, with a series of friends. And uh, a man 
said, hey, I got it. My uncle, this uncle, you need to meet him. He's a good guy. So Mr. Tantillo says that you got to meet my uncle Lou. So we brought in today Lou God. God had, oh, I'm not going to get it right. Gosh, I, no. I shouldn't have waited so long after I wrote it down you know, in practice. Please, please don't get it right. This is better than my name. Guadagnino. Say it right for me, Lou. It's Guadagnino. Such an idiot. Guadagnino. See, I had it earlier, guys. And believe it or not, there's actually a number of Guadagninos in the Rochester area. <laughs> That's awesome to hear, and I and I've never heard that last name before, and I feel like I know everybody in Rochester. So this is a whole new segment for me. Oh now, yeah, so I'm no, they've been around for a long time. One of them built uh, the Holiday Inn on Main Street. That's not there anymore, and another Holiday Inn on Ridge Road. So they've been around. Wasn't the Holiday Inn on Ridge Road the one that burned down? Yes, that's right. That's that was like one of the worst commercial fires, I think, in Rochester history, if I'm not mistaken. My dad was there that day when it burned down, and we had to, you know, he was visiting Rochester, and we had to move him out of there. It turned into a mess. Wow. Yeah, I remember I actually happened to go by, like, my mom was one of those people when she heard about something, she had to go see it. Like, so we went to see the Holiday <laughs> see Inn on the fire at Ridge Road, like, <laughs> my mom. She, <laughs> But my mom was cool because she paid attention to stuff, and if something cool is going on she just wanted to check yeah. it out like so lou thank you for coming to the show it, it was your it was your nephew who, who we're kind of working with with similar business interests that, that turned me on to you i love the fact that when he's telling me how positive you are and you're really talking about uh, people making easier decisions in their life to be less stress-free mm -hmm. which to me is a piece of the cannabis and exercise platform is also living that stress-free life or finding what is good for you for that stress-free life so, so tell us a little about your background, Lou, and, and what brings you here today with us. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I've been interested in stress, reducing stress. I started when I was very young, so when I was 12 years old, I started practicing and learning about yoga and meditation. So uh, I've been doing it my entire life, and um, I found it to be the most helpful uh, stress-relieving techniques that I've ever found, particularly meditation, I find to be very helpful. And uh, I was always kind of, I also worked in the mental health system for 31 years. So for a long time, I've worked with people who are very highly stressed. And what I found out was that although I enjoyed my work and I loved what I was doing, I felt I could help people a lot more with the natural tools that I had learned from meditation teachers and yogic teachers and martial art teachers and stuff like that. And, you know, there was just no place to do that in the mental health system. It's not geared for that. So uh, That's so disappointing to hear, too. It's To me, it was a heartbreaker because it was the biggest stressor I had at work, was the feeling that you could do more and you just were never going to be able to do that. So finally, I retired early uh, three years ago from U of R Strong. And um, my wife and I opened up Living Stress Free Incorporated in 2011. So at first, we just did it uh, online and we sold ebooks and worked with people through Skype. And as time went on, we finally got, um, we got a place on Gregory Street at first, and we had meditation retreats there and weekly classes, three or four a week. And it just kept building. And then we got to a point of where we knew we needed to do more individual work with people. Because unfortunately, people were kind of coming in. Um, what happens to a lot with meditation is that people, they come in when they feel bad. 
Um, and then it's kind of like a diet, you know, they, they do it for a while, they feel better and then they stop. <laughs> so right. it, it's just it's, what people do. Is that, uh, so real quick on this point, cause we're sure. going to go on so many tangents sure. right now, but one of the things that I was always taught, read, learned is mm-hmm. it takes 30 days to create a habit. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when, then, then it's discipline after that. Yes. Am I right? Like, yes. And meditation, I think particularly is a very difficult discipline for most of us. And I understand that I get it. It was for me too, because people, first of all, most people approach it like it's medication, not like it's meditation. So they think that they're going to do this practice for 20 minutes, whatever they're going to do. And they're going to feel a lot better. And they're going to get out there and everything's going to be better. Kind of like they took a Xanax. They want the instant fix. <laughs> they want the instant fix. And what they find out is first a couple of things. First of all, they, they get all excited about it because in their imagination, everything's going to change. Then they start realizing that's not going to happen. And then they start realizing that they don't feel like anything's changing. And then the worst part of all, which is what most people don't know about meditation, is that when you're doing a practice, a real practice on a daily basis, your stress comes out. So a lot of times, if you're a very stressed human being, when you first start meditating, the first 90 days or so are going to be, you're going to feel more stressed, not less stress. And so very few people really have the kind of discipline to get through that. Once they get through that, then it's it's really a great practice and it helps them a lot. But that's a challenge. Meditation is something that I've incorporated in my life in many different ways, but not never formally. Yes. And I know I've gotten benefits out of med- meditation mm-hmm. uh, without formal training. Right. Is that something that am, is that something that I'm faking in my mind, or is that something? So when I when I when I describe what I've done meditating, I do a lot of visualization. Right. So when I was racing for many years, what I did was I would actually just before the the night before the race, I would visualize that whole next day as I was packing my bag. Right. Right. So I visualized from beginning to end, actually closing my eyes, saying taking myself through that whole pattern. Now it's a fast forward kind of thing in my head, right? To the key points of the day right. to make sure I know what, what I need for that day is being packed in my bag. Then the next morning when I got there, I actually would visualize my transitionaries and a little bit of the courses, mm-hmm. right? So not really swimming. I didn't do that, but the bike course I would visualize like the hardest hill. I would think about it. Uh, I would visualize the run, like what stages of the run. And, but my two transitionaries, I visualize like every second of what I had to do, like coming up to the bike, um, taking off my clothes, putting on the right gear. Right. So, I always treated that in my mind as kind of a form of meditation. Was I wrong or right? Well, the way meditation is very loosely defined in the United States, that's not what I would call meditation. It's not what I was taught. Uh, I was taught by very formal teachers. So my teachers came from India or Tibet. Um, The Tibetan teacher spoke very little English. And uh, the Indian teacher did speak very good English. But It's a different practice. For instance, a lot of times what people mean when they say meditation is, uh, in America, is guided meditation. So somebody kind of, you know, tells you to visualize that you're on a beach, um, or they can visualize like you are to achieve something. So that's not, that's what people do call meditation here. It's not what I would call meditation. The meditation that we teach is 
known as non-directive meditation, number one, which means that, uh, and that's an important, there's basically two forms of meditation. One is what I would call yogic meditation, which means you take something like your breath or a word or a thought and you concentrate, you, you put all your concentration on that, a lot like exercising. And the idea is to keep your mind at one point. Okay, so that's directive meditation. Non-directive meditation, which is what we teach, LSF meditation, living stress-free meditation, is non-directive, which means that we ask you to include a technique that you're feeling your breath, but you still think as you normally think. All of your senses are open. You're not trying to focus and concentrate on one point. And the reason we teach non-directive meditation is because the original forms of meditation, the concentration forms, were meant for people who lived a very different lifestyle than we do in the United States. First of all, they, they had very pure food. Uh, in those days, the water was clean, the air was clean. They were very disciplined people. They practiced meditation and prayers for probably 18 hours a day. Um, so- yeah, that's interesting. Most people forget about, you know, the, the life back then was hard, but it was also simple at the simple. same time. Very simple. And there's no way, I mean, even something like diet, if you're going to do that kind of yogic meditation, which I highly support, I did it myself for years. It's a wonderful practice, but you have to live a very disciplined lifestyle. You have to watch your diet. You have to do everything. And then, and you also need a teacher. You know, meditation is not something that anybody should be doing out of a book or a YouTube video. I'm sorry. I don't mean to insult people, but I'll give you I'll give you one. Yeah, tell us why. I mean, YouTube is a big thing now for everybody. It's a really important point. Let's take somebody who has a a mental illness, somebody who has a mood disorder. Okay, so maybe they experience mania at times and depression at times. Okay, so if you practice concentration and you're really practicing it very hard, you can throw your mood off. You know, I'm sure you've probably noticed this in your own life. If you if you can get yourself so psyched up that you start getting overexcited. Well, you can also get yourself irritable. I'm a, I'm a king of both of those two things. Okay. I can get myself overexcited <laughs> and I get myself more mad than I should be in a simple moment. Okay. I, well, I'm a perfect too. example. Me, yeah. me too. I get it. So, you know, so it's not really a good idea to just kind of release this stuff out there. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't do that with exercise. For instance, we wouldn't tell people, well, go press 600 pounds and, and you know, don't have somebody to teach you how to do it. Just go do it. But for some reason, we tend to think that that working with the mind is supposed to be completely safe. And you really should have somebody guide you through it. So that's something that also interested me a great deal because I had formal teachers and I had a formal practice and all of a sudden it became popular. It wasn't popular for years when I was doing it. Suddenly everybody was meditating, only they weren't really meditating. They didn't really have a teacher and a lot of people were experiencing some negative um, side effects from it. And they didn't have the instructors that they needed. So that motivated me a lot and my wife a lot too, because she's a long-term meditator as well. So we started uh, writing books and started doing stuff online, like I said, and eventually we wound up with Living Stress-Free Incorporated. <laughs> and I don't, I think it's something that, um, you know, we see all this anger out there. We see these people that are unhealthy and they're putting it out there to other people. They're, they're judging other people. They're, they're just, they can't be happy in their own skin. Mm-hmm. You, you come across this a lot, I guarantee, in, in your line of work. 
I don't know how to help the people of Rochester specifically because this is where we live. So I can only speak of Rochester. Right. I don't know what to do anymore. Like, like I reference, uh, what, what was the movie that I just saw recently? The Wrinkle in Time, the Disney movie. Right? I haven't seen it. No. It's a really cool movie, and it basically paints a picture. You know, it's one of those cool movies where you kind of go back and can go a little sci-fi, a little not, but the whole gist of it was like be a good person and and show love, and and that's the two strongest things in the world, right? Yeah, there and you have everything it. can branch off of those two things. Yep. But I don't think people in Russia would watch that movie and think introspectively that, hey, I'm that neighbor girl that was being the jerk. Like, that's a lot of people in Rochester. The neighbor girl was mean to the girl who lost her dad instead of, like, being apathetic to her. And right. Because the girl has obviously lost her dad. And in the story, and she's she's stressed and she's angry and she's mean to everybody. Instead of everybody showing her apathy and, and coming in and hugging her and saying, we love you and you'll get through this, she ends up on an island all by herself and her friends all end up treating her like a jerk because she doesn't know how to act. How do we get through this in society? This is a common theme that people don't see that they're doing it, like in the moment. Like... Well, I think there's two things, you know, it's very interesting to me that you're asking me this question because it's something I've wrestled with a long time. And as I'm getting older, I'm going to be 63 soon. um, I've came to the conclusion that there's basically two things. Number one, take care of myself, take care of my own inner state, take care of my own health, understand that I can't change people and accept that have empathy for them. See, one of the things that I learned from my meditation teacher is that see anger as a form of suffering, which was something that was really an eye opener for me, you know, that no one likes to feel angry. If you stop and think about it, even people who like to feel angry don't feel good when they're feeling angry. And so to have empathy for them. But then there's another thing that I think I learned from my generation. Um, Cause I'm old school and that's that. Um, and this is something that you saw like John Lennon and Yoko Ono do You have to make peace and love and kindness, um, fashionable, you know, it has to be fashionable right now. Uh, as, as an older guy, when I listen to, uh, see modern videos, mostly not missing, listen to music, but videos, they're very aggressive. The message can be very aggressive and, you know, I'm older, so I can filter through that and I'm okay. But if I was 12 or 13 years old, and uh, it might affect me very differently. So I think one of the things we could do is make peace cool again. Amen. Like, too many millennials almost, I feel like, and I don't want to say just millennials. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, I'm an affectionate guy. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm working with different generations of people where I'm working now, and they don't know how to take my affection. Mm-hmm. And and my family, Bob, Bob can tell you, like my mom hugged Bob probably every time he came in the house and he was kind of expected to go up to my mom and kind of give her a kiss and hug and say, hi, Judy. Like, am I, oh, is that way off base, Bob? Or, I mean, you didn't, she never told you that, but you knew that was the expectation around my family. Like, oh no, very comfortable. But we're all touchy feely. So right. I'm, a, I'm, I'm that guy in, in public. I'll touch someone quickly. Like if right. I, if I get a vibe or a good positive vibe off of somebody and a lot of times they end up touching me first. Then it's open invitation where it's, it's, it's just simple touching on the hand, the wrist, the arm, like you're acknowledging the other person as someone you like to be around, right? It's just affection. Yes. People don't know how to take that affection, that love. And it's almost like they have to pull back. Like I love giving compliments to people. If I see someone with something that strikes me as a, a cool apparel or the way someone wears the hair, or I noticed someone a couple weeks ago, now they're doing something different and I like it. I love giving compliments. 
the people that know me in Rochester now take me well with that. The mm -hmm. people that don't think I have some kind of underlying reason why I'm giving that compliment. An agenda. Yeah, that's the way it is nowadays, and it's sad, but but it hasn't always been that way. And so I, I'm being an optimist. I believe it can be changed, you know. And one of the things that we can do to change that is to just let people feel good about themselves and show people that being affectionate is not a sign of weakness. You know, it's like, it's like dogs, you know, I, I love pit bulls, so don't get me wrong. I'm not against, but, but it's okay to have a small, cute dog. Not everybody has to be a dog that can rip you apart. You know, it's, we don't have to always be tough. We don't always have to be mean. We don't always have to be uh, on the defensive. And I think that's a good, that's really going to be a media cultural shift. Like, I think it's going to take the movies um, literally to stop having so much violence in movies. I'm not saying to get rid of it altogether. I'm not a censor, but once in a while, put out a movie that shows something kind and something nice so that maybe that gives, you know, cause kids, teenagers, particularly, they need permission to do things. Let's face it. And even you, when they don't, even uh, when they don't, I'm sorry. Yeah. Even when they don't, they feel like they do sometimes. Yeah. Like I, I like back in the day when I was a kid, my parents, Listen, my mom hit me with a spoon. She made sure I had manners. She was a great mother. She taught us right. But still, I didn't want to put myself in that position. I don't know. I, I, I was not as afraid to make mistakes then, I feel like, as kids now are. Oh, my God. I, I would not want to be a kid. I mean, I, I, I hate to say this publicly because I don't want kids to feel frustrated. But, you know, like I've told people this way. I, I moved to California in the 1970s. To go to Berkeley, California, to go to any of the universities, it was free. All you paid was your books. You know, no one grew up in my generation feeling like they had to strive 24-7 to survive. Amen. You know, and so I can't imagine what it's like to be a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old or an 18-year-old looking at those kinds of college bills, looking at that kind of pressure. And then on top of it all, we expect them to not have some kind of anxiety issues, some kind of anger issues, some kind of frustration issues. I, I certainly ungrateful maybe at times of course. and it's not on them. I mean, my poor son and his friends, I, I, I put the pressure on myself as a kid, but when I look mm -hmm. back, when I went through school, working three jobs, going, going to school, my daughter was born two weeks after I graduated college, I had stressors, but they were all put on me by me. Right. Nobody put them on me, but I feel like some of these college kids are putting a lot more pressure on themselves that they got to be more than they are in that moment. Instead of realizing that college kids, you're supposed to be in crappy jobs to get through college. Right. Like you're not going to have your best job for your 30 year career immediately, but they all, no, there's a handful of them that kind of think that though. And I feel bad. Like, Oh, I don't think it's a handful. I'm sorry. I, I disagree. I think it's most of them. But what I wonder about is that they may be right. In other words, they're looking at the fact that you are going to need to be basically a millionaire to have enough money to live comfortably the rest of your life, take care of your health insurance and the rest of it. And you know, my generation, I didn't grow up that way. My father, my father retired with three pensions. You know, he, he wasn't worried about money the rest of his life. And that was common. And so I can't, I can't see how the, how kids are going to feel better until we make some changes in our system so that they can feel better. And that's so interesting. You say this, 
what, what, what the basic necessities of people are, are ultimately what control their stress or not. I mean, to me, like, like my son, for instance, he doesn't care if he has $5 million or $5. Mm-hmm. He wants to be happy and know what his way is and, and who he is and move through it. So he's, he's one of these kids. In this. Now, my son is one of the smartest kids out there. He's one of the probably most experienced kids out there. Uh, he's, I've taken him on so many different adventures. He could, right now, if this whole world fell apart, I know my son would be one of the last. Because, That's wonderful. Because he just is a, like he gets it. He knows how to make his own food. He knows how to set up a tent. He knows how to look out for kids. He, he gets it all. But he feels overwhelmed right now at 20 years old. Sure. I don't blame him. I can't imagine. All the, I see the young kids in my neighborhood, and they don't play anymore. You know, they don't hang. There's a creek in my neighborhood. No kid goes in it. They're at piano lessons. They're at tennis lessons. They're, you know, <laughs> they're as busy as I am. I remember there's a creek in a, a ripwood, ripwood behind my grandmother's house, right? That when it would swell, yeah, we would try to find some kind of apparatus to go down that creek, like some kind of boat oh, yeah, raft or yeah, something. Absolutely. And then you'd pick it up over a road and hit the next section of the creek, right? Like, Oh, yeah. We were always looking for crayfish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you get bit by them? Sometimes, you know, they got the little claws going. But, but I got bit a lot by them. <laughs> I had no idea what we did with them after we caught them, but it was just, you know, let's let's catch these things. And that was the guy who was behind the guys catching the crayfish, <laughs> kicking the soccer ball, going, when are we going to play the game? Aren't you guys done with these stupid crayfish yet? I remember you. Oh, it hasn't stopped. You can tell by my dual day story. I love that you're out here. I love that there's people out here um, like you. So you used to work for U of R. I'm just going to put a yeah. reference out there for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, University of Rochester in, in, in the Rochester region is the biggest employer now. Yep. Why is that? Well, Kodak died. So, and, and, and healthcare is, is became a, a booming business in my day for most of the time, uh, government was, uh, healthcare was funded. So, for instance, when I started working in the mental health system, there was huge amounts of money, massive amounts of money. And nobody worried about, you know, we weren't working in Apple Computer or Microsoft. Then the corporate structure came in and the government funding receded. And now healthcare is basic. It's a business at this point. When do, so you, you were in... Strong for 31 years. Yeah, 1986 is when I started. Tell me a little bit how, how the change you saw uh, along lines of what you just said. Like like what timetable, that kind of thing. Because like, I agree, post office, for instance, I worked for 18-year postal career. I came into it just as they were starting that tightening of, okay. the, of the belt, right? Right. Prior to that, it was a free bank for all postal employees. Gotcha. Uh, not horribly, but the first class mail covered a lot. Yeah. And when that first class mail came away... It became, oh, we got to grind like a business now, and we're not all having hour and a half breaks every day. Right. You know, you're not going to go run your route and sit at friendlies for an hour and a half like they used to on Dewey Avenue. Um, so, so, that, so my point is, in the medical industry, how does that? How did you see that? 31 years, and when did you see maybe the change? Really, like the oh, year? I can tell you exactly oh, when please, it yeah, happened. Exactly yeah, when it happened. I figured it, it, it. It's when Clinton was elected. So right before. President Clinton was elected. Rochester, and a lot of people, it appears, don't know this, which is always shocking to me. Rochester was the model of what they wanted, what the Clintons said they were going to make a nationalized healthcare system, and Rochester was the model. That's 
that's that's incredible to hear that. Yeah, it was. And it was a great place. It was wonderful. I mean, the care that we gave to people was wonderful. One of the reasons we gave Kate great care, though, was because employees were happy. I mean, they treated us like gold. To work there was one of the greatest experiences of my life. As soon as the idea of, you know, we stopped the, the healthcare system, we started calling socialized healthcare, and people started banning it and, and really bashing it. And the Clintons kind of like went back and said, all right, we're not, we're not looking for a nationalized healthcare system anymore. Then it started receding and the funding started going. Then during the Bush administration, he, there were certain demands that were made. One of the demands was that everything had to be based on the medical model. Okay. And the medical model is basically what your, your physician, how your physician looks at things. So in other words, there was tons of stuff you could no longer do for people that were therapeutic and helpful. This kind of standard of care stuff, right? Is oh it, yeah. Right? Okay. And what type of care, for instance, all of a sudden, um, at one point we were taking people that were very isolated and uh, I got to do this once a year, even though this was not my uh, forte or what I did at work. They let me go once a year and we would take people to Niagara Falls and they would be, you know, they'd go on the boat in Niagara Falls. They would have all these social events. These people, it changed their lives. These are people that had no friends. They had very little family and suddenly they were doing things they had never done before. Well, all of a sudden, it changes to the medical model. And what that means is we'll pay for medications, but we're sure as heck not paying for you to bring somebody to Niagara Falls. So everything began changing. In other words, what we could get compensated for. And then our the prices were going down and down and down, how much we made on each client each day. And so, of course, what happens when that happens they lay off people and whoever's there has to do all the work for the people that were laid off. So that was the pressurized environment that started. So I would say in the, during the Clinton administration and then the first few years of the Bush administration. How did that pertain to the health of the population you were dealing with at the same time? Did, like cancer was obviously increasing during that time. Right. Right. So the, so the needs with the cancer side of it was growing up. Right. In general, other type diseases, illnesses, stresses that you saw on your side of it. How Dr did that relate drug to that? Drug abuse, the crack, the crack, uh, epidemic, um, which has really gutted, uh, parts of our city happened because, in my opinion, because many people who have a very legitimate lifelong mental illness no longer had social supports or any place to go during the day, and they're, they're victimized um, on the streets. So people come and take these guys who don't know any better, and, and anybody, even somebody with a severe mental illness, can afford $10 for a bag of crack. And the next thing you know, um, they've lost everything and they're homeless. What do you, what, what, I've lived on these city streets my whole life. Mm -hmm. I have my opinions as well as, as why it's happened here in Rochester. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the availability of your social funds when you have a child, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. If you have a child in the city of Rochester, I was a Thurston post office, and mm -hmm. I would put six checks into one box for six kids for one woman, knowing full well I basically just put seven or eight grand worth of money in that right. box. For those kids, it's incentivized to, to live like that, 
right? The, the structures and that adds to it on top of it, right? Because there's no education with that money. You're just getting checks and not, there's nothing behind it to help spend it right. Don't get nails. Don't get a t- flat screen TV. You got to take care of your kids. You got to feed them right. Like, I have seen the same thing, but I have a question about that. Okay. I'm not saying that what you're saying is incorrect. Yeah, no, I, I my, think it's, a, it's, it's together, a, right? It yeah. may be a cultural thing because, it, for instance, they do the same thing in, in countries in Europe and you don't see the same problem. So, so my, I don't have an answer for this. No, no, yeah, exactly. I, I, and I don't either. The only I, thing I can think of is people are busier and couldn't raise their kids in the city of Rochester. Cause I feel like it's my generation of parents in the whole Rochester area right. that are raising kids that don't have the same respect level as my parents taught our of level. Course. Right. Like, so where's this disconnect from my generation level of us in our forties and, and now kids that are in their twenties um, and you know mid twenties to fifteen, you know for that would be the range or a little younger for kids. My, I, I don't get it. I don't get the city like. I th- I think frustrating. I, I, my feeling about that, to be honest with you, is that and then this is something I've seen from my age is that it, it was the death of of Kodak and Xerox and and factory. Uh, impl- you know, we forget that people. Like when I was living in California in nineteen seventies, I'd come back, I'd visit, right, and I'd see my buddies. They went through high school with me. They'd have like a couple of kids, a boat, a house, two cars, and their wife didn't work. Right? And I would say, this You're is right. this is amazing. So people went from, in other words, at one time, somebody who was lower middle class could go get a job. And next thing you knew, they could have a nice home in the suburbs. They could take vacations with their family. And when that disappeared... That had a huge impact because you hit the nail on the head. Everybody can't go to college. Everybody doesn't want to go to college. So the the question is, what happens to all those people? And and I think that had a huge impact on us. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, unfortunately, I hate to think that the economics played a big piece of it, but lower middle class families. So so my father worked at Roger telephone as a manager, right? My mm-hmm. mom worked part-time for my grandfather's flower shop. That was our routine. My mom saved all her money working at the flower shops for our vacations. And my dad's money was used to pay the bills. Wow. It, it, they told us that. That's like, just that great. Was, That's great. It, so my mom, anytime we went to the movies, it was my mom's money. She made the flower shop. Anytime mm-hmm. uh, she took us on a day trip, it was my mom's money. And then my dad's money was totally to pay the bills and take care of the business. And we had, so my mom probably worked 60% of the time, maybe 50 to 60% of the time, right? Otherwise she was there with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad worked full time as a manager right away, telephone company from 19, 18 years old. Uh, for those of you who don't want to hear a story, a couple episodes ago, my dad, the old telephone guy, he ended up as a VP of Paytech when he retired. Uh, so he went through the whole thing. But low, we were, a, a, I would say, a lower middle class to middle class family growing up. But right. we went to Mother's Hour School, so we paid for the tuition for Mother's Hour School. I know had Mother's Hour School. I know Mother's Hour Had two Sarah. vehicles. Um, we never had toys or a boat, right? But my grandfather did, so we all kind of pooled together. My uncle did, so we all pooled together at a cottage so yeah. we could all enjoy that together, right? right. So that's how we kind of pooled it together. So, so we kind of took advantage of all of our resources within the family. Right. But you're exactly right. Like, right now, life is so tenuous that... Just the cost of living, the percentage-wise, from the mid-80s to now right. 
it's so much more stress just to have food in the bed every day now and pay every little your phone bill. I mean, we never had cell phone bills. Now people are paying what, 100, 200 a month just for a, a phone bill. They used to pay what, 10 bucks a month. You for don't them? even blink when they say it in the store. You know, they say like it's $200 you go, oh, okay. You Wait, know? <laughs> oh, the phone's going to be a thousand. So my bill's going to be an extra 30 bucks a month for the next two years. Okay, right. no problem. And, no problem. and then your phone dies in six months and you realize it's the same as a car. Now it depreciates as fast as a new car. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, it's so smart. I, I totally agree with you. It's a little bit of the other things as well, but yes. I believe in, in roster specifically, definitely the economics, unfortunately. Yeah. It was very sad. So, so let's talk about a little bit more about, um, what you do and try to help with stress. Okay. Bob had a question real quick. I want to get it off my chest while I got it because this is good. Okay. Is is your teaching derived from or incorporate the idea idea of centering your chi or a version of the chi or your third eye? Or That's yeah. a very good question. Yeah. Um, chi, Thanks, Bob. Chi is a, a Chinese word um, that if, if you were in India, it would be called kundalini. Um, and it's, and really, if you were, if you were a Christian, you would call it the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the, the basic idea is that there's this energy available to us in our body and our mind, and um, it's dormant, okay? It's dormant. So we're, we're essentially, we're not aware that we have this energy. And through certain exercises, some of them in, in China, uh, Qigong and, and, uh, and martial arts, um, Tai Chi Chan, for instance, is, is one. It awakens the chi energy. That's what acupuncture is also based on. Okay, it's it based on manipulating this chi energy. You go to India, right next door, or almost right next door, <laughs> and um, you do yoga asanas. Believe it or not, um, you know they didn't wear yoga pants once upon a time, and and the the main the main goal of yoga traditionally was to awaken the kundalini or the chi energy, which then permeates the mind in a meditative state. So this is one of the reasons why people don't get the benefits that they need to get from meditation when they try it on their own, because you need to awaken this energy and you need guidance to do that. You know, for instance, you could, you could practice Tai Chi Chan, let's say, uh, just watching a, a, a video on YouTube, and you, you would learn, you know, the general kind of generic moves, but it takes a real teacher to say, you know, you're breathing really, it's a very disciplined process and, and a meticulous one. You know, you need to have your breathing a certain way. You need to have your movements a certain way. And yoga asanas are exact same. Once you awaken the chi energy or the kundalini energy, that's when your meditations become profound. So would you say that maybe, how do you feel about people that are like uh, psychics or uh, people that are seers? Mm -hmm. Is that someone who's tapped into that piece like that? Do you, th do you think? That's what I've been told. I don't personally know simply because I've never had much interest in that. But, th but the general idea is this, that when you're progressing in your meditation or yoga practice, because this kundalini or chi energy is working. One of the things that happens to some people is they receive the ability to foresee the future, uh, clairvoyance, etc. Um, but remember, this is also true in evangelical uh, Christian churches. You know, there's there's what they call the gifts mm -hmm. in Christianity yep. that happen because the Holy Spirit. 
And so it, this is a pretty universe. And shaman talk about the same thing all around the world. So it's this is kind of a universal thing. It's just the different practices are different. Interesting. Do you see yourself as a clairvoyant or anything like that, or or, or how do I you see yourself not. in the whole role? I, I hope so. Not. I, I mean, really, I, yeah. I, I'm. I see myself as a sharer. In other words. I feel that I was very blessed in my life. I was very fortunate to have an interest in this and when I was a young kid um, and then to meet the right teachers that were authentic teachers. Uh, and so I've just felt really blessed. It's changed my life. It's made my life wonderful. Uh, it's helped me so much. I, I am somebody who suffers from childhood uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and my meditation was the thing that helped me more than anything. Um, along with cannabis, I might say, it also is another thing that helped me. But these things helped me a lot. And so now I kind of feel like in my re my retirement, my golden years that I'm approaching, I just want to give back. I want to help other people get the opportunity. And a lot of people are not going to go to, you know, and I'm sorry, this sounds prejudiced, but it's true. They're not going to go to another culture. You know, they're not going to yeah. accept an Indian guru. They're not going to accept a Tibetan teacher. You know, they want things to be Americanized. And so what we're, we've done, our goal in LSF, Living Stress-Free, our goal is to transition the authentic teachings, the basic authentic teachings, into an American format that works in the American lifestyle. I like it. Explain your path, how you ended up meeting these teachers out. Like, like was this something that came through strong or a friend or family or your wife? No, or, or Tell no, me how you stumbled I, it, stum or came into this. I, I, I don't was, want to say stumbled. I was really, really obsessed. And, uh, you know, I, when I first started reading, the first Indian uh, scripture I ever read is called Bhagavad Gita. And it's a classic Bhagavad Gita. And at the time, you, you couldn't even find a, you couldn't find it in a bookstore. You know, the, you, there were no iBooks, there were no, so you had to go to, so I used to have to go at 12 and 13 years old and go to the library. Oh, so that young. Yeah, I was just about to ask you how no, you, that's I crazy. Was, I was oh, a, wow, you're ahead I was, of it. I was a kid, you know, and uh, it became an obsession for me. Uh, and I just, I still read to this day, my entire library is nothing but Indian and Chinese uh, scriptures and classics like that. So then I went to California. So I went through high school, went to California. And, and where'd I, you go to high school? Just I like your um, Greece Arcadia. Yeah. Greece you're Arcadia. a Titan. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, Titan. I love the name love Titan, it. by the way. Yeah. That's and burgundy <laughs> and gray and white is the colors. Like, yes, we are Titans. I bet you it was pretty different when I, we had a smoking lounge, so it was probably pretty different. We had a smoking lounge when I was in school. Oh, really? Yeah, oh my Only God. for the, my freshman year. It was taken okay. out after freshman then year. They took it out. Yeah. yeah well, there we, was a smoking lounge. Yeah. We had our smoking. Anyways. Yeah, so you're good. I was learning and then I went to California. I moved to California and that was pretty much by accident um, or coincident. My father lived out there. He came to visit Rochester, which he did regularly. He had a heart attack and uh, he asked me to, to come back on the plane with him just to kind of make sure everything was okay. I, I was supposed to stay 30 days and I stayed, you know, 10 years or whatever it was. And during that time I had access to um, Buddhist centers, Hindu centers, yogic centers, everything you can imagine. Yeah. Cause that's where it all, I mean, that's where it started. 
coming over from Asia is a logical West Coast first stop, right? Right. They were into More it. Progressive. I couldn't believe it because I went from Rochester, a place where nobody, I would bring it up at a party and they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And You're the loser in the room. Yeah, yeah. goodbye. Yeah. And I, I, I'm in San Francisco and like walking down the street and there's like center after center after center. I don't even know which one to go in. There's so many of them. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're so overwhelmed. I was in heaven. I was in heaven. So, so, so tell me I'm, when you went out there. So obviously this is before you start working at Strong. So wh- right. what was your life like? Were you just cannabis living on the beach, like bumming around? No, or, no? I, I, like, always, I always worked and I worked in, uh, in record stores. And I, and once again, a very lucky break happened to me. I walked in, I walked into a mall in Oakland, California, looking for a job because the basic thing my dad told me was, if you don't have a job, you got to go back to Rochester. You know, uh, you're, you're old enough now. You got to start taking care of yourself. And so I'm, I'm walking through this mall. I go into this place and I say, I would like a, you know, I'd like a job. And I'd already worked in another record store before this in California. So I walk in there and this guy says, I'm really glad you're here. He's the manager. He goes, this is the number one selling store in all of California. And I want to get out of here because I live in San Francisco and I want you to be the next manager. This is like the first time I've met this guy. And I say, I don't know anything about being a manager record store. And he goes, don't worry. I have this whole system. All you have to do is follow it. So I followed this system and I worked there for two and a half years. And we were the number one store every month I was there following the system. I was only like 18, 19 years old, 19 years old. My rent was $125. My motorcycle was like 50 cents to fill the, and my, my food bill, and I was a vegetarian, so I was pretty fussy, was $10 a week. Oh, gosh. So I was like a we- nothing, wealthy 18-year-old yeah. kind of guy, and I didn't even have a bank account. I threw all the cash in the top drawer in my apartment. <laughs> I love it. Man, if you could only live like that now. Right, where's yeah, the time? Now where's the cash app? <laughs> I wouldn't do that now. Oh, you have a cash app. Right. <laughs> Spend money to your friends. That's such a cool story. So you basically were out there being a little vagabond California boy. You jump, throw into the old, so your record store and now you're meditating, right? So now right. how did the meditation continue while you're out there then? Obviously you must well, have found someone, right? Well, I started practicing and, and I took it very seriously and I was trying to look for the right teacher. Okay. And I just, I tried lots of teachers and it just didn't connect. You know, I, I was learning stuff, but it wasn't the right teacher. Then I had this extremely, this is the one really kind of mystical, unexplained thing that had happened in my life. I had this really powerful dream of where this one teacher, his name is, uh, his name was uh, Swami Muktananda. And he, there was a place in San Francisco I would go to on the beach all alone. I never went there with any friends. It was kind of like my space. And in the dream, he's there. And he's in my space where I go. And there's these little snow fences, you know, and he's, he's sitting in the lotus posture and he's going deeply into the ground. Have you ever seen a toad go into the ground? They go backwards. Yeah. Okay. And that's what he's doing into the sand. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is he here? What's happening? And, um, Suddenly he pops up and he's on the other side of the snow fence. I'm on the other side of the snow fence. I says, well, I want to come and see you. And he says, well, you can't come and see me. I says, well, I want to come and see you. And I lost my temper and demanded that he let me be over on the other side. I'm over on the other side. He goes, just one moment. Next thing I know, I'm waking up. Okay. I wake up. I write everything down to make sure I never forget this. I said, I'm going to his temple tomorrow. His temple was in Oakland, California. 
did, did you recognize him in the oh, dream? Oh, yeah. I had read his books. I absolutely oh, loved so you knew him. Oh, so Okay. Right, yeah, yeah, I okay. loved him. So I knew it was when I moved to Nanda. Okay. So I wake up the next morning and I say, this is it. I finally found what I'm looking for. I'm going to go to his, his ashram tomorrow. I, and so I call and they say, he passed away 45 minutes before my dream. So in other words, I woke up and I had written everything down, the time, written the whole story, the whole dream down. And then I said, well, what time is that in India versus America, you know? And it turned out to be that I wrote my dream down at 4.45, 4.50, and he had died at like 4 o'clock a.m. And I said, this is amazing. Wow. Nothing like this has ever happened to me. That's mind. come on, you know. So, so I said, all right, I, I got to do so. So one thing led to the other. I didn't go to that temple. I moved back to Rochester, New York, and start found out that his main ashram and his successor who had taken his place was in the Catskill Mountains. And so now I was closer to him than ever, closer to his teachings. And so I just started going there very regularly, went for years. When you say going there, describe how the experience was maybe then versus now, if it's different or, or, or if someone that's listening said, I want to try that. Right. What, 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 what would they expect? Well, it's, it's, it's very different than we have. First of all, um, you have to be up and dressed and ready by at least three thirty in the morning. Um, the first, the, I was always in what they call the meditation cave by two thirty. Uh, three o'clock at the latest because because I would just was obsessed like I said so that was what I did then the first meditation practice for an hour and a half was at 4 30 in the morning after they give you some tea and then you then you meditate for an hour and a half and do a chant and then you have a little breakfast and then you go back and do more meditation and then they do a little what they call seva which means selfless service or work so I always worked in the kitchen because I love to cook and then you go back to have lunch and then you do meditation and chanting all at night. And then you're in bed whenever. Nobody tells you when to go to bed. But you're up again at 2, 2.30 the next morning. So it's a long day. Wild. And are you talking about just a weekend or a week? Or no, both? no, no. I would do a week, two weeks, whatever I could afford. You know, whatever I could do. Yeah. How did you feel going down and coming back? Like when you went there and came back, was it a noticeable change in you as a person every time or was it based on what was happening to you in your life at that moment? I think my life changed slowly, but there was one thing that happened that was really a mind blower. And that's when I went back and a very, very dear friend of mine um, that I was living with at the time and she saw me and I had lost 15 pounds in one week of heavy meditation and I was eating like a pig. So uh, it's not like I was eating small amounts of food. So I lost 15 pounds from meditating. Cause when you meditate very deeply, you get this internal heat. You know, they call it tapasha is the Sanskrit word. Tapasha means like friction rubbing. So you, when you meditate really deeply, you feel really hot inside. It's a very unusual sensation. And apparently there was also burning off fat. So um, I, I was feeling great. <laughs> it's amazing that mentally your body actually helped you burn off fat just yeah. by doing something mentally, yeah. not having anything to do with exercise or, I mean, it probably was a little bit that you weren't taking in calories, but to lose that much weight quickly. Right. Pretty impressive. It was amazing. But the thing you have to do to keep it going is you have to keep the routine. 
you know, when you get home, you can't slack. You know, you, you gotta really, I would, I would continue meditating for an hour and a half every day for years. I did that. And I can't even get through five minutes. <laughs> well, you can, it's just, it's, you have to learn how it's not something that you can do. It's, it's not as easy as it seems. I'm a little better than I used to be, but I don't have the patience, mm-hmm. but a little, and that's what you mean. Cause I, I know where I'm at mentally. I, I'm okay. I need to add meditation. I know I do, but mm-hmm. I'm not unhealthy without it. There's some people I believe need it. There's a lot of people that try it and quit. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just talk about so Bob pulled up some a little bit about breathing techniques with meditation, that kind of stuff. Like, like what's some of the basics for people really before you even get into a program that they need to understand that's important leading into meditation other than the fact that it's not going to work overnight. Um, I would, I would say that you have to understand what the goal of meditation is, what your target is. And most people don't quite understand that. They think they're going to calm their mind down. Okay. You're not going to calm your mind down. There's all, let's look at it this way. When you were born, you know, when you were born, when everybody was born, there is just awareness there's just consciousness. There, there really is no mind developed yet. There's no thinking. I mean, if you hold a baby up in the air and you, you look at them, they just kind of are completely right. They're just a wide, wide, wide eyed, like, Oh my, right. what is all this going on around me? Like, right. yes. yeah. So you can kind of see it as thoughtless awareness. Okay. Then you, you know, people start teaching you mom, dad, me, you, you know, whatever it is, this is cake. This is you, you know, and the mind begins developing. And it starts gathering a life of its own. Well, that open consciousness that was there when you were an infant, it's still there. So the point of meditation is to experience, get below the thinking mind so that you can experience that pure open consciousness. So the silence and peace that people are looking for is not something you create with the mind. It's something that's already present. The mind is stopping you from experiencing it. So my meditation teacher used to say, you have to steal the experience of the self. In other words, that pure consciousness from your mind. That makes sense. And in the moments where I've had the most clarity, I would have to say I probably was in that peace of mind state. Mm -hmm. And that's probably when I would have my premonitions that have come to me in my life. Like the, the, I'm not a seer. I don't predict things. None of that. I just really am good at reading energy. That's great. And, and that's gotta be a piece of this, but I feel like if I had meditation it would get me to that next level. It definitely would. Because if you stop and think about it, a busy mind is not a creative mind. One of the things we teach in LSF is that we don't experience reality. We experience our thoughts about reality. And our thoughts are always from the past. So the example I use a lot is they give you a bowl of chicken soup when you're a kid. And let's say you love it and you think this is great. Okay, now shift ahead 35 years. You're in a restaurant. They give you another bowl of chicken soup, right? You don't taste the chicken soup. You taste your memory of the soup that you liked. And then you compare this soup with your memory of what you like. So everything we're thinking about and feeling is a memory in our mind. And so when you become creative or when you're able to see something like you're describing, it's because you dipped into the silence in your mind. The the thinking mind is not creative. It's the silence that's creative. 
Does cannabis help with that or hurt that? It help. Well, there's a lot of t- people that are going to say it hurts it, but I'm going to I'm going to refute that 100. percent And I think I've got history. The first the first guru, the first great meditation teacher, is known as Shiva, and his sacred plant is cannabis. And um, many many meditators in India use cannabis all the time with their meditation. As a matter of fact, I would have to. One of the things I hope scientifically we can find out soon mm-hmm. is when a person is in a state of meditation, and when a person is experiencing cannabis in a positive way, I believe it's the same state. The difference. I'd have to say it's pretty close. It's pretty in my close. experience. It's pretty close. And I used to think that can- cannabis was my vice. Uh-huh. Like, I've always been open and with my whole family and friends. I don't want to get into just too much. My kids have always known at eight years old above what my usage rate was. Mm-hmm. Because I always felt like if you hide anything, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, so I always absolutely. felt like, well, I'm going to throw it all over your faces because if I hide it, then I've got to be wrong. So I'm going to throw it in your faces, and if I'm doing bad things, you guys can call me out on it. Yep. I finished a good career job. I kept my life way in balance through that, mm-hmm. training all your mans, everything. It's, it's very, I think you're right. Cannabis and meditation, the feeling when I'm, I'm meditating or when I can get myself in that state, I don't have to be on cannabis and it does feel similar now that you say that. Is it, I'm curious, do you know the strands that those old school teachers that use cannabis, like were they an indica, sativa? I'm just wondering if they got that into they it. They probably you know what I mean? were indica because it's the Himalayas that you're talking about mm-hmm. where they were. But, you know, Cannabis, you know, India was the first place to cultivate it and it grows wild, you know, like there's just no way of stopping it. So who knows what strains have combined and who knows what's happened over thousands of years. You know, I think the only benefit of meditation over cannabis, the one thing that is that you develop the skill yourself. In other words, it becomes independent. After you've been meditating long enough, you can just shift into that silence when you choose to. Cannabis, that doesn't happen. If you if you don't use cannabis at that time, you can't just shift back into that experience. So that's the one benefit that I think meditation has. I like it. Um, as far as meditation goes, the thing I hear people complain about a lot is I can't shut my mind down and the ideas and the thoughts, they keep coming up. Right. And I've, I've heard both sides of that, like that's good. And then that, that's bad as far as meditation. So, so you as a, a teacher mentor, um, how, how would people ally that? Well, in our technique is non-directive. Uh, what that means is that the mind is allowed to do what it naturally does. So if you're doing a yogic meditation concentration practice, then a busy mind is a problem. But if you're do if you are doing um, if you're doing non-directive like our LSF meditation technique, we tell people just think all you want, hear all the sounds you want, smell all the odors that you smell, uh, feel your body. But while you do that, also experience your breathing, and then what you do is the breathing keeps you in the moment. Okay, it keeps you in the moment, so you don't need to to um, rein your mind in. You just need to have something that keeps you in the present moment. And then what happens is a wonderful thing happens. Most people don't get this. You start realizing your thoughts are completely transitory. You start realizing that your thoughts are so momentary. It's unbelievable. 
And that helps a person feel a lot better because if you stop and think about it, when you're stressed, it seems like A, it's an emergency and B, it's going to go on forever. But if you're aware through the practice of meditation that your thoughts and not just your thought, your physical sensations, you become aware of the fact that everything, you know, recently I, I broke my arm this winter. So I had a lot of pain. It was a bad break. Okay. Because of my meditation, I couldn't just, I didn't just deal with the pain. What I noticed was this, the temporariness, the transitoriness of the sensations of pain. Most people, that's not what happens. They, they experience pain and, and it becomes a solid thing in their mind. And then they kind of fight it and they want to get rid of that sensation, which means it gets even worse because it's like saying, don't think of pink elephants. You know, the more you want pain to go away, the more you're going to experience pain. And so what non-directive meditation does and mindfulness meditation also does it is it shows that everything in our experience is transitory and that's a great relief when we see that i agree it, it what don't sweat the sweat the small stuff it's all small stuff <laughs> it's so simple the the phrase the book everything but when it comes down to it right like you can only control so many things yes figure out what you can control and then put your stress level on that, right? Like, That's right. Look in the mirror. What What do you think? Uh, all right, so a little bit more about meditation. Do you know remote viewing at all? Or have you heard of remote viewing at all? I have. Somebody was explaining it to me. I don't recall right now. Could you? So remote viewing, uh, I'll, I'll say allegedly. It seems like there's enough documentation out there that this is um, true. true. Uh, major Ed Dames uh, worked for one of the major branches of the military and ran remote viewing uh, chapter where he would train people through meditation to remote view. So they basically pull your soul or something out of your, you're having an out of body experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, allegedly they use these programs to, uh, like see German intelligence, but it's all very trained, right? So you actually have to have a spy that goes to in the room where you want that remote viewer to be in to listen mm-hmm. because you have to set the parameters to get them there. Right. So the, a remote viewer, allegedly, and I've, I've only read about this pretty substantially. So I was curious with the meditation because it really starts with meditation, remote viewing. Um, but it's also a little bit different because it's very supposed to be a set criteria. Right. So you're reading things to this person and then they're going to go in a meditative state and get himself to that spot. Mm-hmm. That's the gist of how I understand it. I believe it's a legitimate thing, but I just wasn't sure maybe if you ever had an out of body experience through meditation. Well, I, I think I probably have had them, but again, what I was taught was not, not to make too much of that kind of stuff. You know, uh, one meditation teacher told me meditation isn't entertainment. Um, and, and it's not that people don't have these experiences. They do have out-of-body experiences. They do have an ability to see the future, all kinds of stuff. But real traditional meditation teachers don't deny this. They just, they don't want the student to get too hooked on that. Yeah. Because what winds up happening is they don't reach the goal of meditation, which is enlightenment, which is permanent peace, permanent peace. And so it's a bad trade-off. So I guess what I'm saying is I've had experiences like that. I think many people have. I think most people will have experiences if they meditate long enough. It's great to enjoy those experiences. And it also increases your faith that I'm doing something that's working. 
But at the same time, I would caution against making that your goal. Interesting. Because I had, I had my experience at Halloween, mm-hmm. around the Halloween time. Mm-hmm. And it was something I asked for for my spirit guide and my mother and my uncle. Mm-hmm. Something I've been thinking about praying on. I've talked to about before and I actually had an out of my experience. I was taken wow. out of my body, crossed to a place. I can describe all the elements of in that place. And then I felt myself swoop back into my body. I woke up automatically and had to jump out and take a shower. A big sweat out, like the whole thing. Wow. It was like three in the morning to like five in the morning type experience. Um, but it was legit. Like I know for a fact it was an out of body. My first one I've ever had. I've been trying to have them. It's a blessing. You're lucky that that happened. It's very fortunate. Yeah. Um, definitely there was mushrooms involved that night before I went to bed. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and cannabis that night. But that was it. You know, mm-hmm. no alcohol really that evening, nothing else. That was really the the fuel of pre preceding it. And then it was having, I really prayed before I went to sleep. Right. I seriously had a pray session to my mother, to my uncle, mm-hmm. to my spirit guide. I'm ready. I feel in a good place tonight. It's been a wild couple months. Now would be a good night. So let's see if we can make this happen kind of thing. Well, it's a wonderful thing. And that's hopefully psychedelic research will will take us there that we, this is one, another thing that I have a very strong um, opinion about is that, that psychedelics when used appropriately, which they have been for thousands and thousands of years all over the world can benefit us wonderfully. I mean, should people, should kids be partying? Uh, no, of course not. But there are ways to use mushrooms. There are ways to use peyote. There are ways to use these psychedelic substances in a spiritual way that can be extremely helpful for people. And what most people don't know is none of these things that you just mentioned are addictive. Number one, nope. number two, it's the United Nations that has made these. So they are not allowed to be in any of our possession, not any individual company, co- country, not any federal governments. It's actually the United Nations that suppresses us from all of us. And I've always been curious about that. I don't want to see a bunch of bus, bus drivers tripping on acid every day, okay? Right, Folks, I'm, I'm not sitting here talking about stupidity here, okay? Folks, but medical mushrooms, the studies are out there. I've recited them before. Yep. Tell me what you know about the, them as through your research, through your beliefs. I, I'm interested. To ha- I've had a full episode about this, so I'm interested. Tell me a little bit more about your feelings about, of this in general well, and why it could benefit people. I mean, we could say it benefits, but I really talk about why you think it benefits it, it benefits people because it puts us in touch with that part that I was talking about before, pure consciousness. That's that's what it does. And it also aligns us with, before we were talking about chi energy and kundalini, psychedelics allow us to experience that energy. We, we get to experience ourselves in the universe's energy. And that's what we are. Um, you know, we may not know that or think that we may not feel that, uh, as we get up in the morning to drudge ourselves through another day, but everything is energy and, and the habits that we, the, the mental and psychological habits that we have that really stop us in life. Um, there was a great study way back in Stanford, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Ken Kesey, who was the author, One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, a lot of books that he did. That's how the LSD craze started in California, is that Stanford University started doing in a mental hospital that they had there with alcoholics. And they found that there was really good benefits to al- alcoholics would take LSD a couple of times and they'd stop drinking for several years. 
And so we know from our own research that these things help. Unfortunately, all the research was, was made illegal, um, and it was scheduled as, as a Schedule One drug, as we now have it. But I think that they're benefit because our habits are learned. This is my belief. In other words, if you have a neurotic habit or a self-defeating habit, there was something in your life that made that habit start. Okay, and psychedelics, if used properly and carefully, can wipe these habits out. They can show us that I'm not this habit. I, so in other words, let's say I have a, a neurotic habit of, of OCD checking or whatever it may be, and, and I feel that's me. You know, I can't help it. That's who I am. Psychedelics show us that that's not true. This is a mental habit, that that's not who I am. And when we don't identify with something, that's when we can change it. I agree. And I'm a firm, I think what Denver just approved medical mushrooms. I heard that. And I'll tell you something that shocked me to, I couldn't believe it passed. I'm grateful and happy, but I can't believe it. <laughs> How about, I can't believe enough signatures got on the original documents to get that on in the first place. Because yeah. to me, mushrooms are not the thing that most people, people are all talking about cannabis and weed and THC and all that, but they're not talking about mushrooms. And for me to not only see it, um, get approved, but to get that many people with a petition to sign on it. To, I mean, that's a lot of people probably sign that petition that, Never experienced mushrooms before. My, I, I, I mean, would am imagine. I right? Like, well, out west they're pretty common, though. You know, they were never something I found here. But when I lived in California, they were they were extremely common. So it may be that a lot of people, a lot more people out west, have access to them. And that could be it too. The culture, like you said, you went out there and there was all those different homeopathic living. I mean, the lifestyle out it was west completely different. People don't realize out west how did I went out west for the first time. I think it was in ninety five or ninety six. Right, just amazing how different that lifestyle is and the way people act compared to here. I mean, it's not all great. I mean, like for instance, if you want great Italian food, you come to New York. I mean, it's you know some of the pizza in California is the worst pizza I ever had in my life. But but there was but there were on the other hand, the people were much more experimental. They're risk takers out there. You know, they want to take risks. They want to change the world. And I think that's why Silicon Valley is there. And that's why a lot of things happen. It's not just the computer industry. It's not just corporate businesses. It's the mindset of the average person. Like you'll, you'll meet people very regularly there. What do you do? You know, um, I'm a painter. I want to be a painter. And that's what I do. You know, I, I do landscapes and all this stuff. Are you making any money? No, I'm not really making any money. Are you happy? Oh, yeah, I'm very happy I get to paint. You know, you wouldn't find if in New York, I can't imagine somebody saying that to me. They would say, no, I'm suffering. It's terrible. They should change things. <laughs> yeah. The more I travel, the more I see that. So do you enjoy working with your wife every day? I love it. I am a very happily married man. Uh, we've been together 27 years. My wife is a brilliant person. She's a, a, a she's a professional musician. She's a music therapist. She's a psychotherapist, and uh, she she wrote our latest book, the Living Stress Free Bible, uh, and she is just wonderful at what she does. And did you meet it strong? 
We did. We met at Strong, and there's now. Okay, now they think of it. That's the second mystical experience I've had in my life. I'm I, sure there's I more never, once you remember. I, I never really think about this, but she, I saw her a blur of her. Okay, go across this this big great room that we had there, and she was on her way to an interview. I did not know she was on her way to an interview. I didn't know who she were. I saw this blur, and the thought went through my head: You're going to marry that woman. And I just thought to myself, that's, I don't even know that it is a woman. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. And then I met her at a meeting and they had us work together immediately. And she told me that during her interview, the person who interviewed her talked about me the entire time. And we were together in no time and we were married in short time after that. And it was just a bizarre occurrence. I mean, you just, it just sounds to me like you've had two bizarre occurrences at the most critical times of your life. Yes, that's very true. I never thought of that, but it, um, it does, it does seem that they come and rescue me when I need help. (laughs) I'm waiting for that moment for the woman in my life, Uh, the next woman in my life right now. I I feel like that's the moment I'm waiting for is that trigger. Cause the last year has been a little frustrating for that piece of my life. Yes. And I'm now I'm feeling that, all right, it's gotta be someone I've set up many relationships. Okay. I feel like it's it's going to come to me that way now. So I'm trying to change my thought pattern to match that. Because you can think that in your head, but your daily routine has to match that too, right? Like you can't. I would strongly recommend not just let the universe take care of it. Because uh, I many people have asked me and Marilyn, how, you know, what's, what's the secret to your marriage. And I think the secret is we, we didn't choose it. It's not like I was walking around saying, you know what I want? I want to meet a woman who's a flautist and who's a psychotherapist. You know, I wasn't thinking that at all. And she wasn't thinking about a guy like me. And, and, and that's why it works so well. You know, I think sometimes we get a list in our head, you know, like this is what I'm looking for. A, B, C, D, or carry a list like I've done for 20 years. Or or the <laughs> yeah, other... Or 15. Yeah, I've carried actually a list that my psychic told me I should carry a list to bring that energy towards me. Yeah. I've now thrown that list away because it hasn't worked. <laughs> I would... N- I Myself, I haven't... When it comes to some things, I think that's helpful. If you want to attract something like a car or a house into your life or maybe a job. Okay. But love... I don't think love works that way. I don't think so either. She, I think she was in her in a good place to tell me that, and it was to help me focus. But yeah, yeah I don't think that love works like that either. Yeah. I, and I don't know if it's so much love, but what you need in the moment in your life. Because the last year of my life, I've made a lot of changes. Right. Son moved moved out of the house to go to college. Left an eighteen year postal career. Sold my house of eighteen years. Starting three new businesses. You know, so it's a big change going on. So I almost feel like having someone there probably would have taken away some of the experiences that I needed to have to get me where I am now. Yeah, You may not. Yeah. You you may not have been able to do what you've done in that situation because a new relationship takes a lot of time. That's right. Yeah. So, and and that's great. So I like hearing that validation. So tell me about how you and your wife, when you started this actual, this, this, I don't want to call it business because not, it's a service for people to make them better. Yes. It's a service, but it, but it is a business. It's not a not-for-profit, and that's mm-hmm. something that is very difficult for some folks to get a hold of. But we began in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when we started. And like I said, the whole goal was to transition authentic meditation, yogic techniques into American forms that could help people. And then we created an entire model 
And what I mean by a model is, for instance, one of the things we do is we help people balance their whole life. For instance, if you came to me, one of the things I would do is I'd, I'd show you the eight living areas of that we have, such as recreation, contribution. I'm not going to go through them all. Mm-hmm. Um, all different, eight elements of your life. You eight mean, elements eight, of yeah. your life. And one of the things we do is we, we help people look at how they're, most people are focused at one or two areas. And, and if you say to them, well, you, you seem like you really want to do more recreation, they always say the same thing. Oh, I do. And as soon as I get these two areas perfected, that's the first thing I'm going to do. You know, and the problem is, of course, you never get there. And so one of the things that we help people do is balance their lifestyle. That's a very important thing. And also to individualize everything they do in their life. For instance, diet. We don't suggest a particular diet. What we do is try to teach people how to listen to their body. You know, very simple things, you know, like after you get done eating something, how do you feel? Three hours later, how do you feel? You know, does that happen every time you eat that food? Well, maybe you should eat more of it or maybe you should eat less of it. So it's not so much about the foods. It's the mindfulness of understanding how your body reacts. to what Absolutely. Everything in everything in LSF is turned back to you, back to the self, back to the person, you know, because we don't really need professionals anymore. We have enough professionals in our society. We have enough statistics we can read. What we need to do is read our own body. What we need to do is become familiar with our own mind, our own soul. We need to turn the lens back on us and find out, you know, what, what works for me? You know, so I retired a couple of years ago, as I mentioned before. And one of the things I've learned about myself that I didn't know, I was a guy who was like always, you know, really working all the time. I love to work. And so I would be working all the time. Well, guess what? I found out since I retired that that's not what I need. You know, what I need is to really take my time and be mindful when I do things, to really be patient, like walking my dogs. You know, a couple of years ago, the whole idea was get the dogs walked, you know, and then get them back home. And that's it. You know, now I spend like 10 minutes just talking to my dog in an empty field, you know, and I feel better. The dogs feel better. They cooperate better than they used to. And my life is enriched. So I learned here I was, I thought I was this big worker because my dad was a huge worker and I always admire him and I wanted to be like my dad. But what I found out is it's okay to have part of me be like that, but there's another part of me that needs to slow down and really be present. Isn't that the challenge most of us face? You want to be a grinder and you want to smell the roses. Yes. But they don't know. It's hard to find that balance. I've been very fortunate because I found that balance because I would work six days a week, 10 hours a day at the post office, Mm -hmm. but know full well that when I got out that sixth day and I had that one day off, I was not sitting home. Maybe maybe one week out of four, I would sit home because I needed just to recharge, right? But the other three... I was leaving probably that night to go on an adventure for a day trip and come back that <laughs> night just so I get back to work by that following Monday. Right. Because I had I knew that was my only recreational time and I wanted to have a good experience. So it'd be me and my son, we're leaving Saturday night, I gotta work. I'll be out at five, we'll go up to Adronics, we'll hike and come back th- that next morning. Or we're going skiing. I got a Wednesday off Spencer, you're out of school tomorrow. We're leaving it Tuesday night, we're leaving it Tuesday, skiing and driving back that Wednesday night. Right. Like, 
But did it work? Were you happy? Yeah, yeah we were. We were absolutely happy. That's I, wonderful. It, that's the only way I got through that grind of ten, six, ten-hour days a week. Right. Knowing that, that one day I'm not sitting at home and and just catching up chores and all the mundane stuff that you can't when you're working that hard. I said, "This is my time to go have me be right. me." That's wonderful that it worked for you. But stop and think of how many people do exactly what you said, but the whole time they're with their son uh, at the Adirondacks, they're preoccupied with going back to work on Monday. So they miss the whole experience. And that's exactly. what happens to a lot of us. That's exactly right. And I, I think in my mind, because I, it was so fast, hectic, we tried to get a lot into that time. Sure. It didn't allow me to think about work because we were packing. So like Spencer, we got to have the camping gear set for the night. We got to have the ski gear. Like, you know what I mean? It, we really did it so much where it took, you couldn't think about work and the trip. That's great. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean? absolutely. In the moment, at that moment, great. I didn't know this. Yeah. I mean, this is me retrospectively 10 years later looking like I get why I got through it a little bit. Maybe not. It was right. really healthy. But I, I did escape when I escaped, though. Not everybody can. No, no. And we've got many people right now who are working themselves to death. And they're hoping that the time is going to come when they have enough money and resources to finally take better care of themselves. And what I'm concerned about is that it's not going to happen. They run out of time. Yeah. So many postal employees die right after retirement. Is it real? Because they go active. Postal life is not easy. You work hard, especially if you're a clerk or a mail handler or carrier, you're treated as a body. Number one, unfortunately, not a person. So if we have 20 routes to go out and only 15 carriers show up, those all those 15 carriers got to get those other five routes out, no matter if they're going home at 6 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night, if they're on the list or off the list. Gotcha. Everybody's getting that mail out, right? Like there's no wiggle room. So a lot of postal employees leave this service and want to sit on their couch for a month. Yeah. And you know what that does to you. Not good. So 30 years of grinding every day, having to be up at 6 a.m., having to make sure your uniforms are clean. I mean, think about this, folks. I got a carrier that works six days a week, and he's got three uniforms. And he works, comes in my office at, let's say, 8 in the morning, and he works till 6 at night, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night if it's a bad day. He's got to go home. He's got to make sure his uniforms are clean. His, his family's good. His family's fed, or her family's fed. Then they got to go back and do that same grind the next day for six straight days, and the stress of your body being in the weather and stopping at every house, not making a mistake with a letter, letter or package. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then so, so th- when you have 18, 20, 30 years of that career, when you're done, you just want to, you think you want to sit on the couch and relax. For and, sure. And what happens is their bodies get lethargic. They're not eating right because they're not as disciplined every day, going to work every day, and they still need that discipline because their body's used to it for 30 years. And you end up getting a lot of post employees that die right after retirement. That's very sad. It's very sad. And another pressure, let me, I don't know if it's like this in the post office, but another pressure that people are having, and I was just hearing about this today, maybe I was reading about it, is that people no longer have a chance for advancement anymore. So like when you used to go to Kodak or you used to work at Xerox, I don't care if you started literally sweeping the halls, you know, you could just go. As a matter of fact, I did see a day, a guy today at, at physical therapy and he was telling me how he started as a janitor and became, you know, one of the directors of Kodak. So one of the things I think that's so stressful for us is not just the constant grind, but the fact that, you know, there's no, there's no, the ceiling, you've hit the ceiling. 
you know, and you can't get any higher. You can't use your skills. You can't develop new skills and use them. And I think that that really is um, something that makes us lose our motivation and it causes depression when we feel that we're limited. I'm going to piggyback that by just painting the postal. I don't, I have a lot of experience on businesses, but postal specifically, Mm -hmm. you're exactly right. How about this? The post office, generally speaking, all the upper management, the post office were all carriers, mail handlers, or clerks. So the people that ran the post office for many years, I spoke to this in past episodes that it's basically was people without college degrees running the post office. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, but now the post office in the last six, seven years did this program where if you get your master's, you can come get employed by the post office after you have your master's to come into the management style. So now that stops a whole track of people going up. So basically Washington level now, you're cut off for a postal employee. That's a whole level now of jobs you're not going to get anymore. It's going to be through this cycle, okay? Now, middle management jobs out here on the street. So let's say a manager of a Westgate post office uh, here in Rochester is a level 23 office, right? It's a pretty high prestigious job. Those manager jobs now are going to mostly level 17 supervisors who skip six levels to go from a 17 to a 23 because there's no other little offices to go into because everybody who gets a little office wants to stay there the rest of their life because they want to find the easiest job. So now you have all these brand new postal people getting hired as a supervisor and then like um, like six months later, they're becoming a man, level 23 manager making $70,000 a year, right. being responsible for a facility of like 80 employees, two buildings, making $70,000 a year mm-hmm. when the model is set up for those people to make like 100, 110. Mm-hmm. So now, even though there are some opportunities, and to be honest, those manager jobs, you, you could get one if you wanted one. Mm-hmm. But do you really want to make 70 grand a year and be on the hook for seven days a week? Right. Every carrier after five o'clock, six o'clock, you got to make a call to your boss. You got to deal with every mispackage, every Westgate post office. There's 60 vehicles. You have to have all in working condition from the night before and the next morning. I mean, just the little things of running a building like that. Right. And now you're only making. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's 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 sad. And, and I think part of it is because education has became a business. You know, so that nowadays a guy or a woman has trouble getting a job as a construction person without, I mean, people are going to college now to do construction. And let's face it, there are a lot of jobs that require education, but there's a lot of jobs that don't require education. Just a simple trade school. Yeah. Like plumbing and heating, electrical, duct work. Or, or cooking. Now everybody wants, you know, I almost went to uh, the French Culinary Institute a number of years back in Manhattan. I went there and I was ready to go. And uh, there's a, a very prestigious restaurant called Rooney's here who's been around for a long time in Rochester. I knew the chef in those days. I used to hang out there with my wife. And he talked me out of going to Culinary Institute. He said, don't do it. He says, nobody really cares about your education. They care about who you learned from. So I didn't go, which it turns out I'm very glad I didn't. Well, that's no longer true. Nobody's going to hire you anymore unless you... Now, let's be honest. Let's say you're the... My mother was an amazing cook. She did not go to the Culinary Institutes. You know, I mean, you can cook without going to a culinary institute. So why should it be mandatory? It's mandatory so culinary institutes can make a lot of money. That I mean, if you make people have to go to school, then schools make more money. But then there's this other problem. It's called poverty. <laughs> That's the caveat. 
Lou, this has been such a great episode. I love that laugh. Well, I'm so glad you came in for us I'm today. I'm honored to be here. I really, you, you're very skilled. You're a nat, you're natural at this. You really are. Well, I appreciate that. I, I'm sure I'm not, but that's very kind of you to say. It, it's very easy when I find good people to bring on. It makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to talk as much. I can let you wonderful people. And I'm so glad we added an anti-stress episode. I want to have you and your wife on again uh, in the next in the next month or two months. Uh, to really, you know, summertime, different stress levels of people and really right. talk about this again in more in depth because okay. I think wonderful. this is a healthy topic that not enough people talk about. Sounds wonderful. So Bob's been grinding away today. We had him back. I know he's pulled up a little research for us. It was something Lou wanted to hear that Bob pulled up. So we're going to let Bob talk here a couple minutes and then we're going to close out with all Lou's places where you can go to explore meditation with him and his wife. They also do life coaching. He'll tell everything else he does as well as his publishing of his books. But first, Bob, what pieces of wisdom do you have for this other than your gallbladder is healing? Uh, I had a procedure. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of your body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so part of the conversation came up with uh, psychedelic mushrooms and how they are a, a, a good vehicle to transport you into a, a, a heightened state of awareness and whatnot and, and relaxation and tap into different energies. And I've always been curious. We Once, once upon a time, we tried to grow them in one of my apartments. Uh, I would have to say it was kind of a failure. They grew, but they didn't grow successfully. So I'm thinking, how do we go about doing that now? Because I want to try it again. And if you Google simple simple instructions growing psychedelic mushrooms, there are lots of ways to do it, and lots of methods, lots of people saying this is how you do it. Make sure you go through a lot of them. Don't just grab the first one and say, hey, this looks like a good idea. Read as many of them as you can and see what similarities they have and then combine those similarities to create what you think would work best in your environment. Uh, I, I'm watching this one video of this, this young kid. Yes, we are giving information out there to grow mushrooms, which is against the United Nations. Yes, that's what we're doing right now, folks. Okay. <laughs> Just so you know, but we they, are doing that and but, we are saying do it yourself. But they make you feel good. No, they help you get better. Yeah. Okay. That too. They repair your nerve damage. Let's uh, let's go with that. For all people. right. If that sounds more scientific, that too. Yeah. <laughs> You're screwing with our chi here, Bob. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm teaching you how to focus your chi. <laughs> I want you to bring that chi to one alignment so you're going to be a happy camper. Bob, do you meditate? I don't. Well, my meditation is is going hiking and, and going to the great outdoors, and that's that's where I find my so called religion. You know, and uh, I have two different worlds in which I live in: the world in which I have to go to a job every day, and the world in which I run from it as fast as I can. You know, and and that's where I find my meditation. I would like to break down and just center myself, but I'm doing that more or less on a daily thing, teaching myself not to be so angry, not to be so critical. And I'm watching my way of how I respond to things. So I'm trying to reteach myself all the things because I used to have a temper. Once upon a time, I had an Irish temper and it was bad. And I'm when I saw that back in the day, I'm saying I need to find a better way to deal with the situation so mm -hmm. very I, healthy to do, I, yeah? yeah i've been teaching myself not so much with the whole meditation um 
I find it fascinating. I, I would love to learn more. I'd love to learn more about yoga. But uh, I, I think I'm going to try um, the avenue of the mushrooms and, and see where that leads me and what kind of chaos I can get into. I'm excited. So you also look, you were the one who brought up the question about chi for Lou and, and, and in general. And then did you see anything else in, in what you were looking up there in that moment uh, that would be interesting for people about like techniques or anything that you learned as someone who doesn't? Meditate through your research there. Well, uh, he did cover a lot of the aspects of the whole concept of the chi with the breathing. Um, there's a lot of steps. And I was just curious as how to how he incorporated his style. And like he said, he was bringing it into an, an American um, uh, viewpoint. Um, personally, I find that kind of sad because when I go away, I want to find and learn as much from someone else's different culture. I, I find that as an educational piece because... You, you can learn that the world is a lot bigger if you look beyond what you already know. And um, one of the greatest experiences I ever had is when I went to Puerto Rico. It's like I, I never thought of ever going to Puerto Rico, but it, the, the food, the, the people, and, the, and it was just a great experience. And then I wanted to learn more. But uh, that, that's me. So maybe I'm... No, Bob, I agree with you 100%. I've, I'm totally resonate with what you're saying. That's how I am. But what we've found since 2011 is that there's very few of us. There's most people do not want, um, you know, they go to Mexico and they eat McDonald's burgers. They're, you know, they're not, you know, a lot of people want things to be the way they are in their life. And Marilyn and I, my wife, Marilyn and I, we felt that these people who feel that way, were being ignored. They didn't have the opportunity to learn about meditation and all the things that can help them so much. So we kind of did it. We, instead of like saying, we'll wait for them to change, we said, well, okay, we're just going to accept things the way they are and, and work with it. But I'm totally with you. I would much rather the, the Indian culture uh, has helped me more than I, I'm an Italian uh, American and a, a, a very strong Italian American background. And, and to be honest with you, India has helped me more, their culture, than my own culture. So I'm with you on that one. All right. That's such a great way to put it, too, Lou. Lou, please tell us. We're going to close this episode out. He's been such a generous man to be here with his time. We had some difficulties today. We got through them fine, technically, So and you were very patient. But please tell us everything about Living Stress-Free. Tell us about some of the books you've produced and what you offer to people and how they can reach you through all your social medias. You have the floor. Please tell everybody why they should come to you. Okay, thank you. The best way to get in contact with us is to go to our website, livingstressfree.org, O-R-G, and to just look at what we offer. We offer all proprietary products and services. So our, for instance, LSF meditation is a unique form of meditation that's effortless. And our counseling services, as well as our life coaching services, are all our own unique ways. We have a complete model. Uh, our latest book, The Living Stress-Free uh, Bible, 20 Techniques to Make Your Life Less Stressful, maps out for you in a very clear, simple way, everything we do, why we do it, and how we do it. So when somebody comes to me, let's say as a life coach, and they say, well, my life is going pretty good, but I don't have the career I want, let's say. And one of the things that we do is 
we have a bunch of products and services that we can offer this person to achieve their goals. And so we try to find out what are the obstacles in a person's life. And everybody has different obstacles. And then we help that person learn and use their products and services to get what they want. So I would strongly recommend uh, picking up the Living Stress-Free Bible because it's a very cost-effective way to learn about us. Our website, as I said, is also another way. Uh, We have classes and courses in Rochester, New York, but we also do um, individual work with people, both counseling as well as life coaching um, through Zoom, which is a video uh, conferencing. So we see people right from our home or from our office you can be on your phone, you can be on your computer, you can be, I have people who meet with me on their lunch hour. So uh, no matter where you are in the United States, you can reach out to us and we can work together with you. Um, I'm trying to think of some other really important things. You could hook up with our, our, uh, our Facebook page, which is Living Stress-Free Inc. So if you get on Facebook, you can find us there. We have um, a lot of memes that we put out throughout the day, just trying to encourage you to get through your day. And we also answer a lot of questions that people, uh, they can message us or they can sometimes comment and we, we get back to them on that. We have retreats and courses as well. So if you're interested in doing more intensive work, we just are finishing a six-week course. Uh, right now, my wife is running it. So we have regular courses, and those courses are going to be available online too. So even if you're not in Rochester, you can participate. What's the best way to find your book? The best way to find the book, I would say it's on Amazon, but I would strongly recommend going to livingstressfree.org, not Amazon, uh, because once you read the book, I'm pretty confident you're going to have at least some questions, and you're going to wonder how we can help, and Amazon can't help you with that. How many books have you guys published? Three. Um, two of them right now are, well, two of them are still published. One of them I, I, I stopped publishing. It was this book, The Living Stress-Free Bible, took the place of that. It used to be called The Living Stress-Free Wellness Program. Mm-hmm. Then I wrote a book called It's Never Too Late to Do Nothing. And um, that book is still out there. That's more of a philosophical book. So it kind of explains how how we trans related Eastern teachings and philosophy into an American format. And for some people, they love that book. They find it very helpful. The Living Stress-Free Bible is much more of a practical book. So if you're more of a philosophical person and you like that kind of thing, it's never too late to do nothing. It'd be the book that you're looking for. And if you're more practical, like I'm not interested in that, I just want to get things better in my life, I would go for the, the LSF Bible. Any other questions for our guest, Bob? No, I'm good, thanks. Lou, you're great. Thank you Lou guys Gardi- so much. Lou Gar- Gardenia? Guadagnino. See, I, I, I did that on purpose. If, if I teach you meditation, I'm going to make that your mantra. Guadagnino. <laughs> oh, Don't put Guadagnino. me, I'll fail so miserably. I got to go into it thinking I'm going to be successful a little bit. Now, come on. Lou, Justin, thank you for everything. Bob Pye, thanks for joining us. We got some exciting guests coming up the next couple of weeks. This one was phenomenal. Living stress-free. We are absolutely going to try and do this. We are definitely going to bring him and his wife back on again because to me, I believe our whole society could be better for all living stress-free, just periphery. Any message to send everybody away with, Lou? Just um, God bless everybody. Have a wonderful day. and. 
please take care of yourself. That's all you can do. Get your sleep. It, it's strange. I feel like I want uh, like spaghetti and meatballs tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have that effect. On Mixed with Thai food. It, it's funny because I was thinking more of a couple of sausages and a beer. So. <laughs> Get out, everybody. Memorial Day weekend. Enjoy. We'll talk to you all soon. All right. Good night. <laughs>